ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Luke's in the New Testament about, I don't know, 70% of the way through the Bible, 68% of the way through the Bible. I don't have a clue. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We'll be in the first chapter. As you're turning there, uh, let me tell you a story. Uh, when I was 16, uh, my grandfather uh, was dying. He got a really bad double pneumonia, and he was in the hospital at Duke. And my mom would go home from Fayetteville all the way up to Duke uh, to spend the day with him, and she'd come home late at night. And Christmas came around, and, and Mama really wanted uh, to celebrate Christmas right, even though uh, Granddaddy uh, was, was sick and was dying. And so Mom uh, went through all uh, the things she did. She went and bought a huge tree, a big uh, eight-and-a-half-foot tree, and she put it in um, the sunroom, and she, she decorated it with all of her favorite like china ornaments, all the ones that the kids aren't allowed to touch, the ones that only Mom gets to put on the tree. And she sets it up. And then one day she leaves, and she comes home from Duke after uh, sitting with my granddaddy who's dying, and she finds a Christmas tree, and it's just laying on the floor. And you ever been there? And so she cries, and she picks it back up, and I help her, and we get it standing back up there, and we retighten all the knobs, and we sweep up all the ornaments that have been broken, all these you know, things that I was not allowed to touch in the first place, but once they were broken, I could touch them all I wanted to. And we sweep them up. And we throw them away, and we get the tree back up, and we rearrange it, and we spread the ornaments back out. And then, you know, a couple of days later, Mom heads up to Duke, and she spends the day with my grandfather, and he's um, intubated, and, 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 and he's not doing well. He'll die a few months later. Um, but she spends the day with him, and she comes home, finds a Christmas tree on the floor again. And I remember my mom not not a big lady, just reaches into that tree and grabs it and just drags it straight out the double doors on our uh, sunroom and she just throws it on the back porch. And then she comes back in and she gets the shop back and she shop backs up all the needles and all the broken ornaments there. And she throws the shop back in, back in the storage room and she just says, who needs it? Who needs it? Who needs that? Maybe that's where you're at this Christmas. Who needs Christmas with everything going on in my life? Who needs Christmas? Who needs tinsel and trees and lights and family obligations with people I don't like? Who needs the financial obligation of giving gifts? Who needs the time obligations of cooking? Who needs the, the grunt work of dishes? Who needs the jelly of the month club? Who needs it? You ever feel that way? You ever feel that way that Christmas is somehow like a holiday for other people? A holiday for children or a holiday for sappy romantics or a holiday for families, but just not for you? Who needs it? Who needs all this? Maybe on the other hand, you're asking, what? This question doesn't make any sense. Why are we even asking the question? Maybe for you, Christmas is a definite. It's your favorite season of the year. And you're one of those weird people who like took the jack-o'-lantern off your steps and immediately replaced them with a wreath. Like you took the, on November 1st, you pulled down uh, the cobwebs that were hanging over your windows and you bunched them back up and you put them down in snow underneath your snow village. And for you, we're on like week five of Christmas. You're like, who needs Christmas? Christmas? You're late if you're just not getting to the party. Christmas is a time that brings mixed emotions. And so we're going to ask the question this Christmas, who needs Christmas? And the answer, my friends, is in the Bible. 
of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only two of them actually tell the story of Christmas, Matthew and Luke. And Matthew and Luke do so because they believe it's important to us that there are people who need to hear this story, the people who need to, to realize uh, the comfort that comes with this story. And so they sat down to write, and they decided this was important enough, the section, to include in there. And so the answer, my friend, is what we'll, is what we'll look at for the next four weeks. Who needs Christmas? And we're going to see that there are a lot of people who need Christmas. The disappointed faithful, the bright-eyed, the wandering wanderers, and the deep thinkers. And we're going to let Luke guide us through this. And our goal is for all the bah humbugs to be transformed into alleluias as we find ourselves both more needy than we realized and yet find God's provision better than we realized. And so let's start with the first story in Luke's gospel, the first story that we come to in Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 5, is a story about Zechariah and Elizabeth. The Bible in verse 5 says, In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Luke introduces us first in his story. The first people he introduces us to in his whole story about Jesus are these two characters, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we immediately get overwhelmed by their pedigree and their character. Zechariah is a priest, a religious professional. He's one of the few people in the ancient world who gets to talk to God directly, who gets to worship on their own behalf and on behalf of others. One of the few people who gets to to kill a bull to cover sin. One who has learned to read and write so he can study God's word. And during King Herod's reign, the role of priest was often bought and sold as an auction. But Zechariah is not one of those people who's just bought his way into a religious position. Zechariah is a priest of priests. He comes from the order of Abijah, which tells us he's a legitimate priest, that his dad was a priest, and his granddaddy was a priest, and his great-granddaddy was a priest, that he grew up religious and faithful. Elizabeth is also from a priestly family. That's why it says her family, she comes from the family of Aaron. It means she too grew up in a, a, a house of priests. Her daddy was a priest, and her granddaddy was a priest, and her great-granddaddy was a priest. That she grew up religious. And the Bible goes on to tell us that they're not only are they priests, but they are righteous in the sight of the Lord. And they observe all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. And so they have, not only do they have a perfect religious pedigree, but they grew up religious. Worshiping God is all they've ever known. And they cannot remember a time when they did not worship God. But they don't just go through the motions. They actually have sincere faith. And they have a heart that loves God. A heart that trusts God. And by trusting God's commandments... So they don't lie or gossip or steal or charge unfair rates or abuse their children or drink till they're drunk. When God looks at them, he sees people with faith, and by faith, they are somehow right with God. God doesn't see people who look to cut corners or to use God as a genie or who use religion as a mask to cover their own hypocrisy. And then we come to the Word in the Bible. signals a shift. So we see these incredible people And we get to the next verse, and it says, but, verse 7, but, but what? But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Zechariah and Elizabeth seem to have done everything right. They have faith, they are religious, they aren't hypocrites, he's a priest, her daddy was a priest, and yet one thing, 
the one thing they wanted most in the whole world has been withheld from them, a baby. We know that this is dear to the heart, that this is a wound that still hurts, that this is the disappointment that still stings. We know this is something that they want more than anything because even in his old age, even after trying and paying and trying and sacrificing and trying and praying and trying and going to the doctor and trying and going to a different doctor and trying and not having a baby, Zechariah still thinks about that baby he never had, the son he never held, and the daughter he never married off. We know this because of what happens next. Look at verse 8. It says, Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, Zechariah was serving as a priest before God. And he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Zechariah, He's at work doing his priestly thing, and he and the other priests cast lots, which is a fancy way to say they roll dice to see who gets to go in and burn incense in the holy place, in the sanctuary where God's presence dwells. Evidently, God loves smelly candles. And they roll dice because they believe God controls even the details of our lives and, and that God will appoint somebody through the rolling of these, uh, the casting of this lot, and Zechariah is selected. And so Ga- Zechariah gathers up his pumpkin spice latte candles and his apple cinnamon scentsy diffusers, And he heads into the holy sanctuary, into the place where God has provisionally placed his Holy Spirit. We have no idea how many times Zechariah gets to do this in his life. But there is a chance, and probably a decent chance, that he only gets to do this a few times in his life. Maybe only one time in his life. This may be the only time in his whole life that he gets to go into God's presence and worship. And there in the sanctuary, in the most holy place on earth, where heaven and earth meet, in the one place where God is guaranteed to listen... Zechariah prays. And what does Zechariah pray about? His one chance to talk to God about anything, to know God listens. What does he talk to God about? Verse 11 tells us. Verse 11 says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw the angel, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. And what was Zechariah's prayer? The angel tells him, Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you were to call him John. Stop right there. For just a second, ignore the answer to prayer that he just got, and just sit with me in the prayer itself. What has Zechariah been praying about? A child. Even after dozens of years, even when it's way too late to have children, even when he doesn't necessarily want them anymore because they'll ruin his retirement and he'll have to raise them when he's 85 years old, Zechariah uses his only chance in God's presence to talk about the kids he never had. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I don't think Zechariah is standing in there asking for a kid anymore. But I do think he's standing there asking God why no kids. Not for a kid, but why no kids? Why, God? Why me? Why do addicts have babies all the time, but not me? Why do bad parents have babies, unfaithful people, and drunk college students? Why criminals and not me? Why not me? Did I do something wrong? Am I unfit? Do you hate me? Am I not what it takes? Why not me? Why, God? Why? Let me ask you, you ever sat in God's presence and and just asked those, maybe even in God's absence, where it seemed like God wasn't and prayed those same prayers? 
if you got into the holy place, if you knew there was a place on earth where you could talk to God face to face, you, like Zechariah, would sit with tears flowing and snot running and ask why. You'd rip open your chest and you'd show God the hole that's never been filled. Maybe you've walked that brutal road of infertility, of no baby, of pokes and prods and needles and tests. And instead of daily laughter from a child, all you have is a monthly bill from the clinic. Maybe for you it's something different. You're not asking God, why no baby? But rather, why did so-and-so die? Why did I get fired from my dream career? Why did we lose the house? Why no retirement? Why didn't I get into that college? Why are my teachers treating me so unfairly? Why is my health failing me? Why no friends? Why no promotion? Why no faith? Why no joy? Why no peace? The story of Zechariah and Elizabeth is the story of a disappointed, faithful couple. A couple who've been faithful and done the right things for the right reasons, and yet they're still disappointed. They're still talking to God about something they don't have that they wanted desperately. They are not what they imagine themselves to be. And maybe this morning that is a place you can resonate with. You find yourself thinking thoughts, I just thought I'd be somewhere else. I thought that I've been faithful and I've showed up, but this is not where I thought I'd be at this stage of life. This is not what I dreamed about. This is not what I had in mind. I thought it would be different being a Christian, somehow easier, funner, somehow with more perks or something. And so who needs Christmas? Who needs Christmas this year? Who needs Christmas? The faithful disappointed. Christmas, according to Luke, is first for those who have faith but don't have what they dreamed of. The first people Christmas comes to in Luke's gospel are those people who follow God for a long time and seem to have so little to show for it. And so what's the good news of Christmas? What does Christmas have to say to you if that's where you're at or to your mom or to your brother or to somebody you know in your office who needs to know what is the good news? First, good news today. First, good news today is you are not alone in your disappointment. You're not alone in being disappointed by God and not having what you felt like was yours. If you want the experience of faithful people, if you want to know what faithful people are like and what their lives were like, there's one place to look in the Bible. Well, you can look through the whole Bible, but it, the Bible consolidates it very generously into Hebrews chapter 11, a chapter that I've read dozens of times, a chapter that is often called the Hall of Faith. It is the Hall of Fame faith. It's people who have exceptional faith, who noteworthy faith. And I've read this chapter dozens and dozens and dozens of times. I've read it dozens of times this year. And yet there is something I had never seen, actually two sentences I had never seen until this Christmas, until I thought about Zechariah and Elizabeth. If you look, you'll see Hebrews 11, verse 13, and then Hebrews 11, verse 39. Hebrews eleven thirteen says, All these people were still living by faith when they died. Period. Look at the next part of that. They did not receive the things promised. You see that? They did not receive the things 
promised these faithful people from verse 1 through verse 13, including um, Abraham and Sarah, it says they did not receive the things promised. And so you may be tempted to say, well, maybe that's just them. Maybe they didn't get it. But if you look down at the very bottom of the chapter in verse 39, it lists out a ton of other people. For the next 25 verses, it lists out people. And then verse 39, it says, These were all commended for their faith, yet what? Yet none of them received what had been promised. Does that strike you? Is it all crazy that these faithful people, that every person who makes the hall of faith dies without receiving what God promised? You've heard pastors, you've heard preachers, you've heard televangelists, you've heard somebody say, you can take God's promises to the bank. And yet Hebrews chapter 11 says, these people, the, whole, the most famous faithful people in the entire Old Testament died without receiving God's promises. You see, the list of Hebrews chapter 11 can be divided more or less into two groups. There are those who are faithful for whom God did incredible miraculous deeds like raising the dead or giving children to the barren or giving victory over enemy or healing somebody. And there's that group of faithful, and it says all of those, all those who got miraculous healing, all those for whom cancer evaporated, all those for whom the sun came back to life, all those for whom the prodigals came home, all those died without receiving the promise. That not even those answers to prayer were the answer to promise. Not even that was good enough. That there was something greater. And then there's a second group of people that is intermittent throughout the entire story. And this is the ones I ignore the most in Hebrews chapter 11. There's a second group of faithful people. And these are the faithful people for whom God empowered them to endure awful persecution. They never got the miracle. Their lives were not prolonged. They did die of a terrible disease. They were boiled to death. They were torn in two. They were drawn and quartered. They were, um, they died of whatever. Their families didn't get together. They were abandoned. And yet they both have faith, and it says that group, that second group that God didn't rescue miraculously, but God gave faith to endure, it says they too died without receiving the promises. And so what's the good news? First is that you're not alone, that every faithful person who's ever lived died without receiving the fullness of promise that they felt like they got, they died wanting more, died expecting something greater. And yet what you see is good news here is the same thing that was good news in Luke chapter 1 is that all the groups of faith are commended. All the groups of people were commended. We see in uh, Hebrews 11 verse 40, it says they were commended by their faith. Or Hebrews 39, they were commended for their faith. All these were commended for their faith. That they did not receive, not because God was not happy with them. That Zechariah and Elizabeth did not receive, not because God was angry. In fact, it says they had favor in the sight of God. They were blameless in God, that God loved them. And so what did they not receive? What did, was promised that they were still waiting on one when they died? Was it their kids to come home? Was it a job to come through? Was it a, a house or a promised land or a healing or a diagnosis? Is that what they died waiting on? Is that what they were still anxious for when they died? Is that what they were still trusting God for? No, no, some of them got that and some of them didn't, but they were all waiting on something bigger than that, a better reward. And that reward, that promise, that thing they were waiting on was Christmas. The better reward, the great promise of God, the best gift, the world's biggest answer to prayer is Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the great revealer and the rescuer, the one who has come to save us and to fix us and to fix the world. 
And so even when they were given the promised land, they were looking for something more than just dirt. And even when they were given a child like Isaac, they were looking for something more, the child, the one who would rescue, the one who would come and save. And they knew God was coming, and they could only look forward and see this out in the distance. They only had the fuzziest of outlines of it. They didn't know how or when or why, but they did know God, and they knew God would keep his promises. And so they wait on God to deliver his people from the nations. They knew God would bless all the nations of the earth. They knew that justice would flow like mighty rivers. And they knew that God would be worshipped as loving and just. They knew God would forgive sins and heal the brokenhearted. They knew that he would bind up the injured. But they didn't know when or how. They knew that God was more about hearts than he was about dirt. That he was more about love than he was about laws. But they couldn't see the whole picture. When you see this promise, when you see the promise of a Savior, everything else falls into the background. Everything gets demoted. The desires of our heart drop a step because the deepest desire that I had ignored for a long time was to know that God loves me. And the reason I was angry, the reason I was disappointed, the reason Zachariah and Elizabeth were disappointed is because not having a kid felt like disgrace. You know what the word disgrace means? It means out of grace. They thought they were out of grace because they were looking at the situation of their life. And you know what the good news was? God showing up and saying, you are mine. You are my beloved in whom I am well pleased. What we need more than I need, the desire of my heart, the deepest desire of my heart, the chief thing, if Maslow was a Christian, he would have put it at the, the core of everything, is to know that God loves me that God's not ignoring me, that God's not far off in the distance, that God pays attention to my pain. And when you get this, when you see this, everything else gets demoted. Look back in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, if we move down to the bottom, when uh, Zechariah, he's told he's going to have a kid, and so he goes home and he does the faithful thing. He makes a baby with his wife. If you want to know how that happens, talk to your mom and dad. Um, don't you just think about that for a minute like he comes home and he has to explain that in hand gestures and woo his wife with no words that'll that'll give you some fun food for thought and his so Zechariah the baby is uh, Elizabeth conceives and she is pregnant and then she has a baby and then uh, they're gonna and she says the boy's name is John and the people say you don't have anybody in your family named John let's ask his, let's ask your husband and so they go over to Zechariah and they say what should we name the boy and he says give me a piece of paper and he writes down the boy's name is John and it says immediately his mouth was open and he began to sing a song look what he sings look what he says I'm not gonna read the whole thing to you but the first line says praise be to the Lord the God of Israel because he has come to his people and he's redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. What we see is that Zechariah receives the deepest desire of his heart. He gets a son. He has conceived a son. He is now holding his baby boy, and he can speak. And what does he say? What does he now declare to the world? Does he say, God answered my prayer? Does he say, look at this blessing that God has given me? Does he say, look at this child. Thank you, God. Let me tell you about the dream I had. Let me tell you about meeting an angel. No, he doesn't say any of that. He spends the first eight verses of the first words he can speak after getting the desire of his heart talking about what? 
the Savior, about the one that God's raised up, the one that's greater than John, all celebrating Jesus, not John. Zechariah doesn't first tell people about his son John and how great his son John will be and about how great his faith was and how God answered his prayer. No, he spends the first bit talking about Jesus, telling the world about Jesus. And then it's only in the next four verses that he even mentions his son, that he even mentions the greatest desire of his heart. What he thought was the greatest desire. It's the next four verses. He seems to talk about his son, right? He says, and you, my child, he says, and you, my child, um, I lost my spot. You will be called a prophet of the most high. But he's not actually talking about his son. He's talking to his son now about what? About Jesus. The whole song is about Jesus. First, he tells everybody around, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. Then he looks at his boy and he says, you're not going to believe this, but the rescuer is coming, and you get to be a part of his story. You get to be a part of his story. Why? Because the heart, the desire he wanted, that hole in his heart has not only been filled, but now he has realized that there was a bigger hole. There was something deeper inside of his soul that he did not know about, and it was this desire to know that God cares about me and God loves me. And you know what's crazy? Is that everybody in the Bible, from Abraham through Zechariah, everybody in the Bible, from Abraham to Zechariah, who had faith in God, who was faithful, they, were, they, they believed this in foresight. They could only see it looking forward to this moment when God would rescue, when God would redeem, when God would restore. They could only look through history and trust through symbols and figures and shadows that it was going to happen. And those who did, trusted God, would do it. And they didn't understand how or why or when or but they trusted. But friends, you and I have something better than forward-looking faith. We now get to look back. We have something better than even Zechariah, for Zechariah still doesn't see the whole picture. You and I have seen the whole picture from beginning to end. And so let this be your consolation in your time of who needs Christmas. If you were the disappointed faithful this morning, if you're wondering where is God, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 40, he said those other ones, He said, all the faithful in the Old Testament, and we'll throw Zechariah and Elizabeth into this, all of them died without receiving what what was promised. And then verse 40 tells you why. Verse 40 says, God had planned something better for who? For us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. What was that better thing? What was the better thing that God had planned for them and for you and for me? What was the better thing that you and I can now see that they could only guess at, that they could only hope for, that they could only look forward in facts and figures, that they only saw as um, through a mirror dimly, that they only saw through glass fogged over? Jesus. Jesus, you know how you know this? Because the Bible didn't have chapter breaks in it at the beginning. And so just keep going forward. Forget that there's a chapter 12 right there. Chapter 12 keeps going. If you keep looking through, what does it then? It says, therefore, let us throw off all sins and every hindrance that so easily ensnares us. And let us run with perseverance the course marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. He doesn't say look back at these faithful people and take inspiration. He doesn't say that. You know why? Because all that's going to do is put a guilt trip on you. I can't be like Abraham. I can't sacrifice my son. All it's going to do is make me feel less than and not enough. And so don't look at them. Look at Jesus. You know why? Because you can see what they could not see. They only looked forward. You now get to look back. God has come. God has redeemed. God has restored. God has forgiven. And he did it in the most surprising way, what the Bible calls the foolishness of God. He sent a baby. A baby. I love the way Invos Camp says it. He says, He who created the universe inserted himself in a 
virgin's uterus and tethered himself to her uterine wall and let his cells divide. Friends, I know there's disappointments and I know that you're still hoping for more, that life is not what you expected it to be, but God didn't decide to save you just by flipping a switch somewhere. God, they knew God would save in the Old Testament, and they expected him to do so in some miraculous, grand, overthrowing ways, to come in with a sword and an army and fireworks. They expected it to be this enormous thing, and God did it in an infant. That should be really good news, because Jesus knows what it's like to be disappointed with the world. Jesus knows what it's like to have a family full of sinners. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected by people. Jesus knows what it's like to hurt physically, to have your health fail you, to have your body quit. He knows what it's like to have people disown you. He knows what it's like to have friends walk out on you. He knows what it's like to see the people you love eaten up with sicknesses and addiction. And not just in some spiritual sense, but in just a real tangible sense. He held those people. He fed those people. He ate with those people. And you don't have to guess what God will be like or how God feels about you. Because God not only came, but when he did, he showed us a love that none of us would dare to dream possible. A love that's willing to have diapers changed and feet washed. A love that's willing to go from a manger to a cross. So that that deep hole in your heart, that deep disappointment that you think is the thing that will make everything right can be pushed aside to find the deeper hole. So that the question that nags you because of the holes in your heart and the disappointments in your life can be answered. Does God see you? Does God love you? Does God care what you're going through? Can you even know the answer to that question? The Bible says yes. And you can know it for a fact because of Christmas. Because God didn't settle to just send you a messenger. And he didn't just settle to send you an antidote. And he didn't just settle to send you a doctor. And he didn't just settle to send you a map. And he didn't just send you a book. He sent himself even when that meant bleeding and dying, even when that meant heartache and heartbreak, even when it meant blood, because you're worth it to the God of the universe. Christmas is for the disappointed. Let's pray. Jesus, we show you our hearts and the places that we still wonder if you love us. The holes that seem to just nag at us, the, 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 the holes, the things that are missing in our lives that we thought you would give us because we were faithful, the things we think will fix us. And now we try to turn our eyes to the thing we most need, which is a sense of your love. That were I to gain the whole world and lose my soul, what would I gain? I trust that you are good and that you love me. And I believe that because of your cradle and because of your cross. I believe it because of the cries of birth and the cries of death. But ultimately, I believe it because of the cries of your resurrection 
when you rose from the dead, when up, up, up from the grave you came, and you showed us what the future will look like, when there will be no more sickness or tears, no more hunger or pain, when there will only be love, community, fellowship, joy, party, dancing, when everything that is sad comes untrue, when the lion lies down with the lamb, and a little child leads them. God, I just believe you've brought people here today who need to hear that and want to respond in faith, who feel faith welling up inside of them. and They just want to say, yes, I need you to fill the deep holes in my heart. Even if it means that some of the, the shallow holes in my heart stay unfilled, I trust that you're good, God. You can do that with a simple prayer like this. God, I have been focused on the wrong things. I've been looking to created things to satisfy me and the world, call, and we call that sin. The Bible calls it sin, but I believe you died on a cross to save me so that I can know for a fact you love me and you want to reconnect me with God, and so I commit to following you for the rest of my life. Come what may, I am yours and you are mine. In Jesus' name, amen.